so excited and so thrilled to be here with you. Um, you are so dear to our hearts. When I married Julie, I felt like I married Cornerstone. So even though we are absent, Cornerstone is very much in our hearts and our thoughts, and we have just had just a privilege and a joy of praying for you this summer, for Bob, for Dan, and for James, and for each one of you. And uh, it had been our desire to come to be with you earlier, um, but life gets busy, and we get distracted. And uh, then you can imagine our surprise this week when I got a call from Han to say, would you be open and willing to uh, do a sermon for Cornerstone? Fine. What do you have, Mark? Went through my list and said, okay, that sounds good. And then I get a call back after we get geared up, and Julie and I get geared up to what we're going to do this Sunday. We get a call back, I don't know whether it was later that evening or the next day, to say, would you possibly be open to doing something? Do you have a three-part series? And so get the old pages, put those away, pull out the new ones, and get ready and get geared up. But at the end of all that, we're here to say we love you and we're so excited to be here with you. Our sermon series that we're going to go through over the next three, week, three weeks are lessons from the life of Peter. And the topic or the, the sermon series is called God's Provisions for the Trials of the Cross. But before we get there, I want to do something a little unorthodox. What I want to do is I want to read to you from Psalm 103, and I want you to stand with me as we read through that together, which is a psalm of David to bless the Lord. And after that, I want to lead us in prayer. And the reason I want to do that is that this is the Lord's time, and this is an expression of his love to us. And so we have a unique opportunity to stand together and hear his word and bless the Lord together. And I want to share that opportunity with you. So if you would, would you stand with me? Psalm 103, a praise for the Lord's mercies. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you angels, mighty in strength to perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Let's come to him in prayer and let's bless him. Sovereign Lord and creator of the universe, you who have fearfully and made each person in this room, you who from before the beginning of time ordained sovereignly to create Cornerstone Bible Church and to carry it through its path and its journeys up until this point for your name's sake and for your glory and for the exaltation of your Son. Lord, we come before you, inadequate, woeful, how we fall short, Lord, of your image and your glory. And for this we ask for forgiveness, O Lord. And yet with hearts filled with joy and awe for who you are, we bless your name, O Lord, because you are a God whose steadfast love endures forever. You are the God who does not hold accounts but forgives our iniquities and removes them as far as the east is from the west. You are a God who is mindful that we are simply humans and that we are but dust. And because of those things, O oh Lord, we bless you because you sent a Savior to take on our flesh and our blood, to come and live among us, to dwell among us, to minister to us, and to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. Lord, we bless you for that and praise you that we, of all people in this world, here at Cornerstone, have every reason to give thanks and rejoicing. Because during the good times and the bad times, Lord, during the hard times and the difficult times, during the trials of the cross, Lord Jesus, your love of the cross endures forever. We thank you for that. Bless us this day, O Lord, as we open your word. Cause your spirit to go forth. May we hear the words that you have for us. May each one of us in this room become less. And may the love of God and Christ become more. And may we depart from this place with hearts overflowing because we have known the love of God and when we're done, may we know it even more. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. I was honored this past year um, by the Master's College. They asked me if I would contribute a chapter to their Men Discipling Men Biblical Counseling book. And the chapter that they asked me to write about was on ministering to men who suffered from emotional extremes and emotional brokenness. And I guess I was flattered until they gave me the topic and then thought, okay, why am I getting this topic in particular? But as I went through and thought, what would the Lord have for this chapter and what would the Lord have for this topic? my mind, the, the choice was obvious, my mind went directly to a man who had shepherded me during very, very difficult times in ministry, during a time when I was probably two years into my seminary training and I was serving as an uh, intern 
in the pastoral care department at Grace Community Church. And it was a time when I was crashing and burning. And I was physically, spiritually, and emotionally broken. And the man that God gave me to shepherd me during that time was none other than the Apostle Peter. When there were, was really no one else to support me or sustain me during that time, when the men beside me seemed to covet my position that I had in ministry, when the men above me seemed to be concerned about how I was going to continue to fulfill my duties even though I was physically failing, and when the people after me wanted to know how they were going to be taken care of if I wasn't able to function, God was gracious and merciful and sent First Peter to me and the book of Jeremiah as well. And so those two friends, Jeremiah and Peter, became very, very close intimate companions. As I read and reread and reread what they wrote, they ministered to me. And I would just encourage you to allow the authors of the Bible, the men who God chose to shepherd you, to become your good friends. They're there for a reason. And as we walk through their lives and as we read their stories and as the Holy Spirit ministers to us from them, the Lord has left us a testimony, a witness from Christ himself, companions who do not let us down, companions who encourage us, and companions who point us to the cross. As I had the opportunity to go back and go through First Peter, and I thought for this chapter, what I want to do for this chapter is to look at not only First Peter, but I want to look at the life of First Peter. And we're going to do a bit of both today. We're going to look at the Gospels over the next three weeks in different accounts. And then we're also going to look at episodes from the life of Peter, and we're also going to look at First Peter. We'll try and get all that done in one shot. We'll see if we succeed. But as I went through and studied First Peter, and I also studied his life, something that became apparent to me is that Peter kind of gets a bad rap in evangelical and Protestant communities. The Catholic Church has taken Peter and his life and it turned it into a monstrosity. Peter, some sort of Superman who justifies the papacy. And yet, in evangelical circles, Peter becomes a sort of a disciple who all the three stooges are wrapped into one disciple. He's the buffoon. He's the loser. He's the guy who continually says the wrong thing at the wrong time. He's the one who continually shoots himself in the foot. And as the stage gets bigger and the pressure gets on and as they get closer to the cross and the profile gets bigger and all eyes are on Jesus and his disciples, it seems like Peter crashes and burns even more, making more of a fool and more of a buffoon of himself. And as we listen to a lot of the sermons on Peter's life, more often than not, Peter's presented as someone who can make us feel better about ourselves. If Peter's that pathetic, and God can do something with him, he can do something with me. He's kind of a, a spiritual biggest loser, is how it's portrayed, where you can be that pathetic, but Jesus can be your personal trainer and whip you into shape, and at the end, you can end up like Peter. But I think in many ways, that misses a lot of the point, because so much of our focus is on Peter's failures that what is often overlooked is really the end of his life. And as we consider the end of his life, what I want to do is just give you a little bit of perspective before we get to our text in Matthew, is that Peter was not also one of the biggest failures of the cross. But when Jesus 
chose a leadership to carry on his kingdom and his ministry on earth. He chose a plurality of elders. And of those plurality of godly men, the man he chose to be first among equals was none other than Peter. And when Jesus made a choice of who would be the first evangelist to proclaim the gospel, to inaugurate his church on earth at Pentecost, who did he choose? It was Peter. And when the church was crashing and burning in first century AD, the churches spread out in Asia Minor as persecution began and the trials of the cross began to get stirred up. Who did Jesus choose to be the chief shepherd of churches that were in crisis, churches meeting affliction, churches meeting trials and conflict, pressure from and without and imploding from within? We often forget that the shepherd that Jesus chose to shepherd them through that time was Peter. And on perhaps the biggest stage of his life, we find Peter, according to our oral tradition, not cringing from the cross, not failing, not succumbing to the pressures or fearing the suffering, the pain, the affliction, and the brokenness of the cross. We see a Peter who says before he dies that he is unworthy to walk in the footsteps of his Savior. We see a Peter who watches his wife crucified before his eyes. And we see a Peter who finishes well and we're told is crucified upside down without hesitation and out of love for his master. And so as we consider God's provision for the trials of the cross, Peter is most appropriate and most relevant for each one of us because if there's one thing that the Bible and the Gospels are sure and certain of is that if you are a true child of God and if you have been set apart to follow Christ, trials, afflictions, and suffering are yours and they're guaranteed. It's just a question of when and a question of how. Paul tells us in Philippians that you have been gifted Grace gifted, charizomai, you've been given the grace gift not only to believe, but what else? To suffer for the gospel and to suffer for the name of Christ. Chris Mueller was with us recently for the Grace Church Advance Academy, and he said to each one of us, It's guaranteed that you're going to suffer. Get that through your heads and get ready. He said, Because you know, in North America, Christians are not persecuted in the same way churches are in the rest of the world. And of course, those of you who go on your missions to Czechoslovakia and to other places are well aware of that. That in other parts of the world, what are they faced with? Hunger, famine, warfare, persecution, jail. All of those different things are the trials that they face for the name of Christ. And Chris Mueller shepherded us and said, gentlemen, you know what? We don't have that in North America. Here's the equation. Trials and suffering, very minimal external persecution, the promise of Christ that we will suffer for the cross. So he said, guess where it's going to happen? It's going to happen in the church. If it's not going to happen from without, 
It's going to happen from within. But here's the good news. The Lord has ordained that suffering for a reason and for a purpose. And not only has he ordained that suffering for a reason and a purpose, he has also provided us with everything that we need to have joy in the face of those challenges, to triumph in a way that is honoring and glorifying to the one who we call Savior and Lord. And so what I want to do for us over the next three weeks is to look at Peter and say, how did Peter get from that place of brokenness and failure and complete inadequacy to honor and glorify the Lord and just cringing and melting under the trials of the cross to become the man who Christ chose to shepherd his people with the provisions that God had given to face the trials of the cross. What was the path and what was the power that got him from A to B? And the answer to that question is just remarkably simple. Might not be one that we want to hear, but it's remarkably simple. That the power and the path that took Peter from a beach on the seaside in Galilee to being crucified upside down for his Savior was the power and the path of God's infinite love in Christ. The power and the path of God's infinite love in Christ. And so what we'll do for the next three weeks is look at three different lessons from the life of Peter through the gospel that point us to God's provisions for us to honor and glorify him with joy and rejoicing in the face of trials and to come out like Peter did with faith that has been tested and proven like gold. Lesson one today is that God has given us the fullness of his infinite love in the person and presence of Christ. God has given us the fullness of his infinite love in the person and presence of Christ alone. Next week, we'll look at God's gift of obedience in Christ. And week three, we'll look at the gift that nobody wants, God's gift of the cross. Our text today and where our journey begins, begins very much at the beginning of Peter's journey. And it begins in Matthew 4, 12 through 22. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 4, 12 through 22. The portion of Scripture that we'll consider today is Peter's encounter with Jesus, his face-to-face encounter on the beach in Galilee, his call to discipleship. Matthew 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Hopefully I can live up to the right expectation, but what we have here in this passage in Peter's face-to-face encounter with Jesus is one of the most remarkable events in the entire canon of Scripture and one of the most remarkable events in the history of the world. And as we look at the life of Peter and his story and consider this lesson that the fullness of God's infinite love has been given to us in Christ Jesus alone. We realize as this story begins that Peter, like each one of your stories and the story of Cornerstone Bible Church, begins with someone other than Peter. It begins with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the story so far, up until Matthew 4, is that Jesus has been affirmed privately and publicly not only as the Son of God but as the King of Heaven who has come to earth to bring God's righteous reign to restore it to the world to judge the world for its sins and to bring salvation to the people of God and to transform the world and to begin God's new creation and his remedy for the sin and the curse of sin and the destruction that that has left in the world. He has been baptized and the father has said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased in front of hearers. The Holy Spirit has anointed him as the son of David, as the descendant of Abraham and the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament in a public audience. He has been taken by the Spirit into the desert and he has been tempted and tested with all the temptations and testings that the people of Israel face and each single one he has succeeded. And he has been set aside and demonstrated in front of all the angels and demons and all the spiritual powers as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel. Where Israel failed, Christ has succeeded. And where opportunities were given to avoid the cross, Christ shunned those and said, you will worship the Lord your God alone and was approved as the Messiah. And after all of this, we arrive at Matthew 4 and suddenly we get a sharp switch in gears and we find Jesus waiting in Nazareth, rejected by his hometown, and then making a decision 
as John the Baptist gets taken into custody, to move to, of all places, a fishing town by the Sea of Galilee. And he goes there for the purpose of launching his messianic ministry to proclaim the gospel and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. For those who are familiar with the Old and New Testament, that's a bit of an odd choice. It would be as if, just to give you a framework of how unlikely a place that Galilee and Capernaum in a fishing village to receive the kingdom of the king of heaven to come and to begin his ministry, it would be a little bit like President Obama deciding to go to Fresno, California and set that up as his headquarters to launch his presidential campaign. And that's not to bag on Fresno. I have a good buddy who's a pastor there, and I'll give a shout-out to Fresno. But the truth is, there's a remarkable statement being made by that. And it's there so that we don't miss out on that. And to understand that, and to understand what exactly Peter encountered that day in the beach, you have to understand a little bit the context of Galilee and Capernaum. Within the Jewish community, the history of the Jewish community, is that the glory of God resided where? In the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And all power structures and all spirituality and all greatness and all economic things revolve around the temple. Politically, theologically, spiritually, financially, the temple was where everything happened. And that traces its roots to the fact that the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt and his greatness was there and his presence was there. And the general idea was that the closer you could get to the glory of God and the presence, the more blessed you were. That was where things were at. What's the flip side of that? That the further you get away from Jerusalem and the further you get away from the temple, the further you are from the blessing of the Lord. So real estate in Israel, even to this day, can be most expensive in that area right around the temple. If you're a spiritual person, if you're highly esteemed within the Jewish community, you live or reside somewhere close to the temple. You pay enormous sums of money so that your children can go to a yeshiva close to Jerusalem. But if you live in Galilee, which is in the north, far from Jerusalem, in what's considered to be the sticks, where does that put you in the framework of being close to God? You're far from God. And you're far from the action and you're far from the esteem. On the social ladder, on the religious ladder, you're low on the totem pole. What's more is if we look at verse 18 and 19 and we look at what Isaiah says about Galilee. Excuse me. Verses 15 and 16. Even in Isaiah's time, he refers to Galilee as Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness, the people who were living in a land in the shadow of death. Galilee was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Why was that? Because it was on the border town. Think of Tijuana. 
on the border town, right up where all the Gentile nations were at. That was one of the areas that was one of the first to compromise God's word and God's laws. That was one of the first communities that made deals with the local nations so that they could get ahead financially. That was one of the first areas to breach the covenant of God and therefore stand under all the curses of the covenant, an area that was considered to be abandoned by God, out of favor by God, cursed by God. It was the land of the living dead. And that was borne out over history because that was the area that would get invaded continually, where the Gentile nations would come in, take that area. It was a prosperous area. It was a farming community. It was really the breadbasket of the area. And that was the area where all the surrounding nations would come in and they would occupy and they would put their temples and they would put their people. And the local Jews were mixed in that area. So as you can imagine, Galilee was an area that even in Isaiah's time was considered of all the different regions and all the different people to be cursed by God. And of the people who were there in that place, believed by many people to be cursed by God and by his covenant, standing under the curse of sin, was Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John. When we look at that and see who they were in the context, they were, quite simply, the least of the least and the lowest of the low. And the belief at that time was that when the Messiah would come and bring God's righteous reign and deliver people from their sins, he would also bring judgment on those who were not right with God. And guess who, you, who they thought was the first in line to receive that judgment? It's the people of Galilee. Blind, dead, dying, and waiting to be burned. That's who they were. And so when we see here that we're told that the King of Heaven and the Son of God chooses of all places to come and bring the glory of God and bring the presence of God and proclaim good news to the people to say repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and to provide a way to be right with God. It's no accident that he ends up in all places of Galilee. The prophet Isaiah, as he goes through the text in 15 through 17, makes the point very clearly, as Matthew does, that Jesus was in Galilee to fulfill the word of the Lord, that it was a divine plan from God before the foundation of the world and promised to his people as an example of his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love, that though judgment would come for a season and though he was a righteous God, he would find a way to shine light on the least of his people in the kingdom, the most broken, the most blind, the most spiritually distant, the least in his kingdom. And what Matthew tells us here is he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. And he frames his prophecy in the beginning with Jesus and afterwards with Jesus. And he talks about the light of the world coming. 
is that the light that God sent to fulfill his promise, his Shekinah glory, the glory that was present in the temple, the glory that let the people know that his favor was still present, the glory that let the people know that his protection and his power was there to save and deliver, that glory had come not in a textbook, not in a seminary student, not in a seminary, not in a parachurch organization, not in a rescue mission, an arbitrator or a mediator. It came in a person. It came in flesh and blood. It came in the Son of God and the King of Heaven, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do when he arrived? How did he handle that situation? And we think, what would we do in that situation when he shows up to Galilee to bring in the salvation of the world? He didn't sit down with the leaders. He didn't go to the synagogues and say, let me meet with just the rabbis. He didn't go and meet with the Roman leaders. He walked with the people. It says that he settled with them, that he came and he dwelt among them in verse 13. And then in verse 17, it says he preached to them the gospel. And then in verse 18, it says he walked among them and came face to face. And he actively pursued fellowship with them. At the time that Peter is standing on the beach working in his nets, The king of heaven, the glory of the world, comes down and comes face to face with him. And just to try and understand for a minute how remarkable that moment is, just to lower that moment for a minute, you have to appreciate what it meant to be a fisherman in first century A.D. How many of you have ever had the privilege or the pleasure of working with commercial fishermen? note-takers. How many of when I was trying to put myself through medical training, I uh, took a job at the Ministry of Hunting and Fishing in Canada, and I thought it was going to be this illustrious biology job where I get to come in as the expert and the science student. And I walked into the doors of the Ministry of Hunting and Fishing in Canada, and they took one look at me with my Brooks Brothers shirt, my khakis, and um, my spiffy shoes and they laughed at me and they gave me a set of waders that came up to here and they sent me out into the field with the local guys to one of the stinkiest and ugliest jobs and uh, I ended up spending the rest of my days basically uh, waist deep and elbow deep in some of the stinkiest and smelliest things in the Great Lakes of Canada. And as we look at where Peter was, he was not spiffed up, he was not cleaned up. And to get an idea of what exactly was happening at that moment, it would be as if President Obama went to the docks in Alaska and took two men off of the fishing boat after they were finishing cleaning and scaling fish and saying to them, I want you to be my vice president. 
and I want you to be my Secretary of State. For us, that would seem ridiculous. And if that was shown on the news, that would be the end of President Obama's career. But for Christ, this was an act of love that would serve as the foundation of the church and his ministry and his legacy here on earth. I don't think Peter fully appreciated what exactly happened at that moment. I don't think many of us at that time would have appreciated what happened at that moment. But what I want to do for the next few minutes is to have a look at the scriptures to see what does the scriptures say about what happened at that moment. Because most of us look at that time and that moment as Peter's conversion experience or his call to discipleship. Christ comes and meets Peter while he's casting his nets. He makes the call. Peter follows. The discipleship begins. And Peter becomes one of those who follow him. But I would venture to say that something greater and something more is happening here than that. And I want you to consider for a moment the magnitude of what has happened and the nature of what has happened. When we consider the magnitude of what has happened, it's helpful to look at the first chapter of John and it's helpful to look at Hebrews 1 and it's helpful to look through the epistles of Paul because what each of those men state is that what Peter came face to face on that day was not just a mere man, but Hebrews tells us that it was the full radiance of the glory of God. The full radiance of the glory of God. And what John tells us in chap John chapter 1, John who was essentially Peter's best friend in many ways, he says what? We beheld his glory, right? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Everything that God is was present that day on the beach, coming face to face with Peter, a lowly fisherman whose hands and feet stank of the local sea and the local fish, a local fisherman who, in the greater scheme of things, was considered to be the first person who should burn when the Lord came to make all things right in the nation of Israel and to restore Israel. The second aspect of the magnitude of that moment is given to us by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, which Matthew has referred to. That is the same section in Isaiah where Isaiah prophesies that a son will be given to us, wonderful counselor, that a child will be born, everything that we celebrate at Christmas. And in Isaiah 9, the section before is about God's judgment on a wayward people who have broken his heart and who are broken because of their lack of faithfulness. And afterwards is a section on judgment that God is righteous and he will judge these people. And right in the middle is God's promise to these people that though he is a righteous God and though he is a just God, his steadfast love endures forever and he will not forget his people. And in an area covered with death and dying, 
He will send his light to shine upon the people, and his light will dawn upon the people. And when we look at Isaiah and that prophecy, what we see here is the fulfillment of that prophecy, which Matthew is explicit to make, that on that beach, at that time, at that moment, all of the promises that God had made to his people in the Old Covenant, the covenant to Abraham, that he would bless many nations through Abraham and give him a seed and give him a blessing and make his name great. All the blessings and promises that he gave to David to say that there would be one who would sit on his throne forever and judge his people rightly. And all the promises that he gave to Jeremiah and Ezekiel that he would provide a new covenant where people would be given a new heart and a new mind and the law of the Lord would be written on their hearts and they would be able to serve the Lord and be able to be made whole, and their iniquities would be forgiven. All of those things are coming to pass on this beach. What Peter is experiencing is he is experiencing the initial fulfillment of God's salvation for the world, of his new creation, and his new covenant, whereby he is going to redeem for himself not just the people for his name, but at the end of it, the heavens and the earth, and he and his people will be one. And yet we see at the same time, as Matthew and Isaiah are making clear, is that it's not just a message, it's not just a textbook. It's the presence of God himself who comes to deliver that message person to person. FedEx to Peter. That's the magnitude of what's happening. What's the nature of what's happening? Peter is experiencing in that moment, in the fulfillment of all of God's promises of salvation and deliverance, the infinite mercy of God. As I said before, of all people, you would expect Peter to be first in line of those who would be burned and judged. And yet, what does he receive? He does not receive judgment. He is also receiving not only God's infinite mercy at that moment, but he's receiving God's infinite grace. Did Peter pursue Jesus? Did he beg? Did he knock at that door? Did he give large sums of money? Did he serve in the local synagogue to prove how great and how worthy he was? Absolutely not. His sovereign creator, the king of the universe, for whom all things were created, came down on that beach and came to him and sought him out. What we see at that point in that moment, in Matthew 4, 18 through 22, is the infinite mercy of God, the infinite grace of God, crossing every barrier and every obstacle to make it possible for Peter to even be in contact. And then what he does for Peter when we look at the rest of Matthew and the rest of Scripture is that he provides Peter with eternal fellowship with the glory of God 
from that point on, throughout Peter, the rest of Peter's life, and now as he is in heaven, God's fellowship was no longer in the temple, no longer boarded up, no longer separated by rabbis and priests and sacrifices, but was right there face to face with Peter. And the last aspect of the nature of that that I want to draw your attention to, his infinite mercy, his infinite grace, God gave himself to Peter at that moment on the beach in the person of his son. God did not send someone else. God did not send a study guide. Jesus showed up and essentially said, here am I. To give you a flavor of how radical that is, you need to go and look at every other religion of the world and see how they function and see how you can have a relationship with God. I had the privilege and the pleasure of being in Rome. And when I was there, I took what was called a Christian tour. And essentially, a Christian tour is basically how to make money of anybody who's remotely connected with the church. Mormons, Catholics, Jehovah's Witness, whoever, just pony up your money, we'll put you all on a bus, and we'll take you to every pagan temple in the name of Christ that was there. And one of the stops were the Lateran steps. I believe it was St. John's, the place which allegedly, I think Constantine's mother basically found the steps which Jesus stood on when Pilate was judging and she moved it from the Holy Land back to Rome. And there are these steps which are standing there. And it is packed with predominantly women from all around the world crawling on their knees and on every step with the rosary, citing the Hail Mary, countless times, going up and down, up and down, up and down, in order to try and have a better relationship with God. And if my memory serves me correctly, by the side of that place is a plaque which lets you know what this place was, but what can be accomplished by your penance as you go up and down those steps. It was one of the darkest places I've seen in my life, quite frankly. And as I stood there, I said, this is kind of creeping me out. And I was told that right beside there, there was a little cathedral where allegedly Jesus' face had shown up. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a freak show. Let me go and check that out. My wife knows I have a curiosity with the morbid. But so I went up there. And as I went up those steps and came into the chapel, there was a essentially an Italian thug there who basically came up to me and said, five euros, you know. And I looked at him and I said, do you think Jesus would have charged me five euros to see him? And he got really upset and he chased me out of that place and, and down the stairs. But it kind of gives you a framework because it's not just that. As Julie and I had the privilege of going with TMS to Israel and going to visit the temple wall, it's packed with Jews who have traveled all across the world. And what they do is they stand in front of the Wailing Wall and they rock back and forth and they write their prayers down on a piece of paper and they put those pieces of prayers in the wall. And the belief is that somehow that wall is the closest they can get to the Holy of Holies 
where God will return and where his blessing is and where his presence is. And somehow they can have connection. If they show up and rock at that wall, in some small way they have proximity to the Shekinah glory of God. And as we look at what happened to Peter on that beach, I'd like to try and sum it up with this statement, which is the lesson for today's sermon. That at that moment on the beach, God gave the fullness of his infinite love in the person and the presence of Christ alone. God gave the fullness of his infinite love in the person and presence of Christ alone. I guess what I'm saying to you is that God didn't hold anything back at that moment on the beach. And yet the interesting thing as we look at the life of Peter and what I want to do for the rest of this sermon is to look at Matthew 4, 12 through 22 in light of the life of Peter is to see how that lesson fit in in Peter's life and how it became a burden for him but ultimately how it became a provision for him to face the trials of the cross. Because what we see after that moment, after Peter is asked to follow Christ and he leaves everything and he follows Christ, is things start out very well. Peter starts with great enthusiasm, as many of us do, after our initial salvation or call into discipleship. But it doesn't take long afterwards for things to start to head south for Peter. And what we discover as we go through the different events in Peter's life, Jesus walking on water and Peter calling out and saying, Jesus, Lord, command me to walk on water. And then he gets out part way and begins to sink and Jesus has to save him. Or Jesus saying, I'm going to the cross and Peter standing in the way and saying, no, don't go to the cross. And Jesus rebuking him. Or Jesus offering to wash his feet And Peter saying, oh, don't wash my feet. And being rebuked again by Jesus. And then ultimately telling Jesus that he was going to go and die with Jesus. And that he would protect Jesus and he would give his life only to find himself betraying Jesus three times. Is that there's this recurrent pattern with Peter during his discipleship. And that recurrent pattern with Peter is that he has a hard time receiving the infinite love of God and Christ alone. In fact, what we see with Peter is Peter is continually trying to prove to Jesus that he is worthy of that love. He's continually trying to show Jesus, you invested in me, you saved me, I love you deeply. Lord Jesus, let me show you how much I love you. Let me come up with a better plan than the cross. Let me come up with a better situation. Let me show you that I have the right answers. Let me show you that I have the right program and the right ministry. Let me show you that I can go toe-to-toe and step-to-step. And when you go to the cross, I'll be with you and I'll never let you go. When I look at Peter's life, 
one of the first things that came to my mind as I thought about this is, in many ways, Peter was more Asian than he was Jewish. Peter would have fit in very well with my tribe and my community. In fact, in many ways, Peter reminds me a lot of my dad, which maybe is one of the reasons I have an affinity for him. But Julie will tell you this, that my dad's old-school Cantonese, and old-school Cantonese are about being big givers and really poor receivers. You go over to his house, and he'll give you plate after plate after plate after plate of food. And if you bring a gift, he's going to send that gift home with you. And people buy them gift certificates for serving in the church, for a restaurant, my dad will say, no, this is far too expensive. You gave us a $50 gift certificate, we can't accept that. We're going to take you to that restaurant with that gift certificate. That's my dad. And, you know, it, understandably, sometimes it's tough times. But I love him dearly and I understand his heart. But he's been raised in a culture and a place which is about giving and that to receive is considered to be a, really an insult to people. And I love him dearly for that, and I've been raised in that culture, and Julie knows that. And sadly, I brought a lot of that into our marriage, and the Lord has had to shepherd me through that aspect of things. But one of the things that Peter would ultimately have to learn is that you can't give the love of Christ until you've received it first. And that when we refuse a gift, Julie really helped shepherd me this with me with this. She pulled me aside one time and said, You know what? I know what your dad is trying to do, I know what you try and do, but did it ever consider did you ever consider it, Mark, that maybe what you're doing is not loving and considerate? to the one who has given you that gift. And she was right. And it was a blessing to hear that. And more often than not, I, I try and do the best to follow through on that, on being good about receiving gifts. But when we don't receive, essentially what we're coming out and what we're saying, whether we know it or not, is I don't need your gift. And that's essentially what Peter was saying at those times in that moment to Christ, even though I don't think he was fully aware, was that, Jesus, I don't need your love. I can do a better job serving you with my own love. And the challenge for each of us as we look at that in our heart is it's really driven by pride, is it not? It's really driven by a desire that somehow, in some way, shape, or form, our Lord and Savior and our God would find something of worth in us that would redeem that relationship. But what's the message of that episode on the beach of Christ coming to Peter, a dirty, stinky, cursed fisherman? It's the message that, Peter, you didn't bring anything to the table whatsoever and that the glory of God is here with you because of God's infinite love his infinite mercy, and his infinite self-sacrifice. And that this is the only thing that can not only save you, but this is the only thing that's going to enable you to walk with me on the journey and the path of the cross. 
Peter initially didn't get that lesson. And as you read through the text in the Gospels, what you see is Peter slowly and surely starting to crash and burn, bigger and more. More embarrassing, more pathetic, more difficult. And then you start to look at Peter's reactions. What are Peter's reactions? You start to see an increase in frustration. You see an increase in anger. You see division and strife. You see envy. And ultimately, you see an act of violence close to the end. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if I forgive someone seven times, is that enough? Why is Peter asking that question? Yeah, he wants to prove to Jesus that he's good and he's a good guy and that he knows how to forgive. But in all likeliness, there are people who are driving him crazy. Seven's the limit. I'm there. You know? What does he do when he talks about the other disciples? He gets caught up in disputes of who's going to be the greatest. And at the end, he even asks, what's going to happen to John? He's comparing himself to others. Where do I fit in in the pack? Where do I rank? Lord Jesus, what do you think of me? And ultimately, as a servant comes and they come to get Jesus, what does Peter do? He's the one who brings the sword and cuts the servant's ear off. Contrary to everything that Jesus and the gospel is about, which is ultimately to surrender to a death on the cross for the glory of God. Each of those different situations. And then finally, as he stands in the courtyards of the high priest and betrays Jesus three times, and Jesus looks at him. It says he weeps, and in some translations, he weeps bitterly. And then you see his behavior afterwards. And his behavior afterwards are very much the signs and symptoms of a man who's depressed. It's easy to look at Peter that way. But I have to say to you, when I've looked at my own life in ministry, many times I say I'm not that much different from Peter. How often in our homes, our marriages, our families, our ministries, are we desperately trying to prove our worth and prove that we merit the love of our wife, our employer, our pastor, our shepherds, our friends, the people we minister to? How often in the busyness do these things start to become about many things except the one thing that is most important, the love of Christ? And how often do we find ourselves spiraling down with all those same symptoms and all those same emotions? I would have to say for me, unfortunately, all too often. And yet here's the good news. In the face of each one of those episodes, Christ was always present, and his love never abandoned Peter. In fact, if you look at closely and carefully at the text, you see that each one of those situations, Jesus himself brought Peter into those situations. Peter would never have been in any of those situations to be humiliated, to be broken, to be crushed if Christ hadn't brought him there. And the interesting thing is to see that in each of those situations, Jesus allows him to crash, 
And Jesus allows him to burn. And Jesus allows him to be broken. Even at the biggest betrayal of all and the greatest humiliation that is here written for us, that people still look and marvel and laugh and in amazement, Peter's denial three times on the night of Jesus' death. Jesus is there while he's being beaten and brought before the court. And what is Jesus doing? Has he abandoned Peter? No, we're told that he looks at Peter as the cock crows. God's love never abandons us in those times and in those moments. In fact, God ordains those times and God ordains those moments for a purpose. What we have seen during that whole time is that Peter goes from a time where self is becoming more and more and more and Christ is becoming less and less and less. And as that pattern is happening more and more, Peter is sinking and sinking and sinking until he gets to a point where it seems like he can't sink anymore. And where do we find Peter at that point? We find Peter back where he started, on a beach in the Sea of Galilee, in the end of the Gospel. Exactly the place where Jesus confronts him in the first place and says, come follow me. The place where he received the fullness of God's infinite love in the person of Christ. We find a different Peter there. A broken Peter, a crushed Peter. Peter, the man of many words, suddenly has very little to say. Peter, the man of plans, has no programs to offer Jesus. Peter, the one who is going to go out and step up, sits there quietly, a humbled and broken man. What does he receive on that beach at that time from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He receives God's infinite mercy. He receives God's infinite grace. And he receives the infinite person of God coming and reaching out to him at his lowest point and his lowest moment. And what does Jesus do? Jesus asks him the simple questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It's speculation on my behalf. But as we look at the rest of Peter's life, I believe what we see is that at that time and that moment, Peter got the lesson that he was given on the beach in Matthew 4. that God's infinite love in Christ had been given to him in fullness and that the only thing that he needed was that for everything in his life and that ultimately the best love that Peter could offer would never be adequate for the trials of the cross. The best efforts that Peter could offer would never be adequate for the cross. His best program would never be adequate. And if he was going to bank his money on those things, he was going to crash and burn. Friends, it's not until we are broken that we are willing to receive the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see that, as we see that in the life of Peter, we can begin to see that trials, afflictions, conflicts, and suffering 
when it comes to the true child of God who has already been given everything that God is, it's a blessing and a gift of love where God is preparing us to love him more and to receive his love and to serve him. What do we see in Peter's life from that time onward? If you read 1 Peter and if you read 2 Peter, you see a remarkably different man. You see a man who comes to a community of people who have already begun to suffer terribly for their faith and are going to suffer more in all likelihood under the persecutions of Nero that will become famous throughout the history of the world as far as the magnitude and horror of those persecutions. And you see him gently shepherding these people. And what does he tell them to do? Is it any surprise? He tells them to focus on their salvation and the greatness of their salvation. And then he shepherds them to live lives in the strength, in the power, and in the light of their salvation. The point that he makes is that our salvation is not a one-time event and God's mercy and grace to us is not a one-time event. How often do we function that way? I got saved, now let me go out and do a good work for the Lord. But Peter is shepherding them and bringing to them this lesson that he received on the beach. That God's infinite love has been given to them in one place and one place alone. In the person and the presence of Christ. And that's where they need to be. And as he closes out that letter, what does he say to them? I want to read that for you. 1 Peter 5.10 He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And then in verse 12, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this, meaning everything that he's written about in 1 Peter, is the true grace of God. And then what's the command that he gives them? Stand firm in it. Brothers and sisters, God's provision for the trials that we face in our homes, our marriages, our work, and our churches has been given to us entirely in the infinite love in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. And we're going to tie this up with a few exhortations for you for this week of how we can do it practically. Many people will come and say, well, Peter had Jesus right there and he walked with him. It was easier for him than us. But the truth is we have something greater and better. We have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been poured in our hearts. We're told that we have hope because the love of God has been poured in our hearts, Paul says. And that we have the Word of God. We have the people of God. We have greater than that. We have the presence of Christ himself through his Word, through prayer, and through his people. It's the reason why the author of Hebrews exhorts us 
to forsake not the assembly of believers, but to gather together, to stir one another up to good works. It's not to impress God with how good we are. It's not to come and say, okay, how can I help out? One of the reasons we gather is so that we can be with the bride and body of Christ. So I want to exhort you this week in light of what I've just shared with you to take some time this week to spend some time with Christ, to spend some time in his word, to spend some time in prayer, and to meditate on the greatness of your salvation and on the infinite love and the infinite mercy and the infinite grace that each one of you who is a true child of God, has already been given. And how the Lord is using the trials and the challenges and the conflicts of your present life to open your heart to be a receiver first and then a giver. And I think you will find that if you're able to do that in some small way, that that time will be well spent. What happened to Peter? And what happened to that church who Peter shepherded? They got the memo and they got the lesson. One of the most persecuted churches in the history of Christendom would go on and survive against all odds. The Colosseum being burned alive, being taken out of their homes, having their homes and their bank accounts confiscated, being cast out from pillar to post, facing those trials, facing those conflicts, facing those difficulties, those people survived. And we stand here today, and you stand here today in Cornerstone Bible Church because they got the memo and they got the lesson, as did Peter. And if there's hope for a church like that, that can survive that level of persecution, that level of conflict, that level of difficulty, then I want to try and encourage each one of you that there's hope for each person here for whatever trials and challenges and difficulties you may be facing in your life personal, physical, spiritual, or whatever. Why is that? Because the hope is not in my love. The hope is not in the love of Bob or Dan or James. The hope is not in the love of Grace Church Advance. The hope is not in the love of any institution or person. That hope is in the love the infinite love of God that has already been given and that is already present and that is already bearing with you at this time and this moment in the person and presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the true grace of God. Brothers and sisters, stand for a minute. I'll close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. That you, the King of Heaven and the Son of Glory, will condescend to be with stinky, filthy, broken and downtrodden sheep like us. And yet, what a testimony to the magnitude of your glory 
and the magnitude of your love. Lord, this day, make us receivers of your love. And may what we give in our homes, in our marriages, in our churches, and in our jobs come from the overflow of the infinite love that we have already received in you. And may our church and our homes and the world around us be transformed. And may it never be the same since, even as it was for the Apostle Peter there on that beach. And Lord, we will be quick now and then to give you all the praise and glory to your infinite love in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.